Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. What's the first brand each of you remember making an impact on you as children? I would say that it was probably Play School because that's where I learned about the world through toys and through playing. Mike? More difficult for me, I grew up as an immigrant in Belarus and we didn't grow up with brands. Knowing the question was coming, I pulled my family <laughs> and I heard everything from Disney for my girls and uh, Nike shoes for my boy. And I do remember the first time that I got a pair of Nikes to play basketball. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guests today in the CMO podcast are entrepreneurs Mike Zelkind and Tisha Livingston. Together, they founded a company called 80 Acres Farms. Mike is the CEO of 80 Acres, and Tisha is the CEO of Infinite Acres, a subsidiary of 80 Acres. It is the tech platform that powers 80 Acres Farms. You are likely not familiar with this company, but you should be and you will be. It is a nine-year-old startup that has raised more than $250 million and is simply revolutionizing farming. 80 Acres is a pioneer in indoor vertical farming. Imagine a farm that does not need sun, soil, or favorable weather. A farm that does not use pesticides, uses 100% renewable energy, 97% less water than a traditional farm, and is 300 times more productive. And locate it near its end consumers, eliminating complicated and long supply chains. Produce from 80 Acres Farm is now selling at Kroger, Harris Teeter, Whole Foods, and other retailers. Both Mike and Tisha come from traditional food companies. In fact, they met while working together at Pierre Foods. They have been partners in 80 Acres since its inception in 2015. Their company is one of Cincinnati's, in fact, one of the world's most promising young companies. This is my chat with revolutionaries, a new breed of farmers. Here's Tisha and Mike. Well, welcome to the CMO Podcast, Mike and Tisha. You two have known each other for a long time. I'd like you both to describe in your own voice how you first met. So Tisha, why don't we start with you? So I was at Pierre Foods in Tri-County. So Pierre Foods, what did they do? We have further processed beef pork chicken. So we made hamburgers and we made chicken patties and chicken nuggets and anything that was meat processed. And so we sold a lot to schools and food service providers, things like that. So it was was the, the place that I had started my career right out of the university. I went to UC. University of Cincinnati, not California, correct? 
University of Cincinnati. Yes, I'm a local uh, Cincinnati native. So University of Cincinnati and started there as Pierre Foods and I was running operations finance. And so I started in operations as supervisor and then moved into different roles and then eventually was running operational finance. The company had gone through some challenging times and had gone into a bankruptcy. The management was being changed out and Mike was part of that management change. And so the first time I met him, it was uh, before he had accepted the job and he was interviewing me and asking me a bunch of questions about operations and operational finance. And so it was the first time and it was very intense, uh, let me tell you. So lots of questions, really had a great knowledge of operations and supply chain and kept me on my toes. So your first impression of Mike was intense. Yes. And my impression today is still intense. (laughs) (laughs) Hasn't changed. Your version of the story, Mike. I think what Disha said is largely accurate. Yeah, I was coming into a new role here in Cincinnati. I was living in California and a good friend of mine, Bill Toller, at the time Pierre Foods, which was eventually renamed as Vance Pierre Foods, as Tisha described. And I started doing due diligence in the company to decide and to make sure that I wanted to come in and run operations. And my first conversation was with Tisha. And as Tisha said, I sometimes get to be a little intense. I'm very focused on the business. I've run most parts of the business. And I really appreciate and respect folks that know their space, can discuss an issue openly. And if they don't know it, they admit they don't know it. And the way that she was able to respond to most of our questions, frankly, keep up with both of us and uh, demonstrate knowledge of business, knowledge of operations, the whole nine yards. When we hung up, Bill Darkash said to me, he said, if you're smart, you're going to hang on to that one for the rest of your life. Whoa, prescient. Yeah, that began wonderful collaboration where we realized we worked really well together and, and continued doing private equity work for years to come together, fixing companies until we decided it was time to hang our own shingle and build a company that we want our kids to work in and we want to be proud of, an ethical company that was purpose-based, that did something truly different, that was based on competence and serving consumers and offering something that, frankly, most food companies have lost their way somewhere in a process from the time they were founded, and, and we wanted to do it right. Take us back to the moment that the idea for 80 Acres Farms was first contemplated. What was that moment? I honestly think it wasn't over a coffee or, you know, over a walk. It was over several years experience. So, you know, we've worked together 15 years. We worked through Pierre Foods. We brought that company out of bankruptcy and tremendous profitability, a great story there. Then we went to another company called Seger Creek Vegetable Company, which was a company that had gone into bankruptcy. And it was a completely different bankruptcy, though. You know, so when we came in, I had gone through the bankruptcy of Pierre and I'm like, okay, I know how to do this formulaic, you know, how to get through bankruptcy. But I was spoiled with Pierre because we had a great business, we had great people, and there wasn't a lot of damage to the brand or the operations through the bankruptcy. It was it was rather quick. When we went to Seger Creek, it was completely different. That company had been flirting with bankruptcy for many years, and the operations were in poor repair. The morale was terrible. People were not treated properly. There were a lot of issues in that company. 
And it was part of the reason I think why Mike and I were drawn to that company in the first place is because they really needed help. They needed a champion. And we felt like we could really make an impact in the lives of the people there. And this was a vegetable company, right? It was a vegetable company, absolutely. And there's many reasons why the company went into bankruptcy. But one of the reasons why the company had gone into bankruptcy is because their operations were shut down because of a wastewater issue. And when Mike and I got in there and we started realizing that this operational issue, this wastewater issue was all they were doing is washing vegetables. And we were both curious and we're like, how is it that we're just bringing vegetables from the field? We're washing these vegetables. We're not adding anything to it. And so it it didn't make any sense. And so then we started researching and recognizing that the way that we have to farm today is it's very detrimental to the environment. It's progressively getting more and more challenging. And with climate change, you know, we're having these crazy swings. You're needing more pesticides uh, to be able to deal with pest pressure. You have a lot more issues with soils being depleted. Rain is inconsistent. Either you have too much or not enough. And so we just recognize that there is this issue with fresh produce and us growing it the way we did today, which kind of led us to start researching and thinking about how do you take the fastest growing category, which is fresh in the grocery store, and you have this pent up demand for it. How do you change the game on it? How do you change it? And so we just started researching and we saw the pros and cons of being part of another of someone else's business. We're builders. We like to build teams. We like to bring people along. We want to create opportunity. We want a great workplace for people. And we felt like with all the experience we had had over the past at the time, you know, 20 plus years, that we really had a lot to a lot to offer. And we wanted to try to do it ourselves. And so we knew we wanted to start our own business. And then we had all of these pressures of this company, the Sager Creek Company, and recognized that there was just this great opportunity if we could figure out how to do it. And so then that began our research. Tisha is right. In the process, because that bankruptcy caused so much pain to a lot of the suppliers who lost money and they didn't get paid for transportation expense, a lot of suppliers dropped Sager Creek. So we literally had to take our new team and drive up and down the country and talk to all the farmers. And we realized the struggle of these farmers. And we realized that even though every farmer told us a different story of why they were struggling, none of them wanted their kids to be farmers. And we realized there are massive structural impediments with the system, the farming system we have today. The subsidies are wrong. And we realized that the solution was technology. How did you come to that conclusion? Because it was obvious when you look at 30,000 feet of all the problems that existed, it was all manual and all the problems were an act of God. There was absolutely no control. Everything is random. And the farmer a lot of times gets paid not to harvest a crop because they'll make more from crop insurance than they will from harvesting because it's easier. They don't have labor or whatever. And the farmer is the hardest working group of folks that are so dedicated and so committed to their land and to the customers. They're not marketers. They do the best they can. There's tens of thousands of them, and there's a few buyers out there. So it's a system with massive structural issues that nobody's doing proper root cause analysis on a fix. We're just continuing to do the same thing we've been doing for years and arguing about symptoms. Nobody's trying to fix the disease. You talk about sustainability of farming or lack thereof. 70% of world's water 
is used in farming. Why? Because farmers are bad? No, farmers are phenomenal. But guess what? Many farmers, you go to Salinas, California, and you drive through the fields, and you're going to have either pivots overhead, or you're going to have drip irrigation, where you have pipes with holes punched in them that you turn on, and water just sprays, and, and most of it goes away. And it's incredibly wasteful. And to put to modify the irrigation system, no farmer has money to do that. doesn't matter how expensive or not expensive it is because they don't control the brand. They're in the front end. They get squeezed by processors because processors don't own the land and folks that own the land don't run the farms. And you contract 12 months out for the land, for the acreage. You have no idea what comes up. So you either have abundance of supply because of weather and then everybody does and you have oversupply and prices drop. And again, farmers get hurt. Or you have tough markets when you send, frankly, horrible product to the consumers. And that's the only time anybody ever makes money in the industry. The whole industry is upside down and backwards. And it's because there's no reinvestment. Because the price of produce has been driven down so low that, frankly, it's almost become a monopoly by current field processors, which are purposely keeping price low. So there's no true investment going into the field. And technology is expensive and you have to develop it and you have to figure it out. So we decided we're going to do it and we decided we're going to start with our own money and proving the concept. And to us, proving the concept meant four things. We wanted to make sure that we grow product consistently, not one cycle, but 20 cycles. Fortunately, cycles are fast, so you can do it in a period of time. We could push the product out into, into the market through retail and food service supply chains, value chains, if you will, channels of distribution. The product would resonate, and not only could we get shelf space because we've been operating in the space for 30 years and we had a lot of experience and people knew us and trusted that we're not going to oversell and underdeliver, but once we get the product in, the product resonated. The consumers bought the product and kept coming back. At that point, we had to pro forma that there's a business case that we can develop this technology, build these farms close to the consumer or at the distribution center. We would use the existing last mile of the existing supply chains, which is highly efficient. It's the 2,400 miles between Salinas, California and Cincinnati, Ohio, that the product is to travel that is highly inefficient, cause a lot of damage. So we felt that if we can perform a business case that works, that we can actually build a scalable business that's going to grow sustainable product, incredibly high quality, that could focus on flavor, nutrition, and freshness, and consistency of supply. None of those things exist today. If we could do that, and we could truly perform a business case, then we will go raise money. But you know, we would run our own pilots. Yep. But we knew at the time, though, that organics was continuing to grow in demand, but the field-grown food they they couldn't grow enough to meet the demand of organics. And what do most people think about organics? erroneously think that organic is pesticide-free, which it's not. And so people wanted things without the chemicals, without the, the pesticides, and they wanted it to be good for them. And we knew that the cost of technology was coming down. So at the time, you know, LED lights were continuing to improve in efficacy and their cost was coming down. We saw that, you know, with chip technology and with data processing, the cost of having data was coming down. And so all of the things on the technology side were showing that the, the technology to be able to control the environment in a more meaningful way to give the customer what they wanted was, was all coming together. We jumped in early. We jumped in before it would make economic sense, but we saw that the trends were going in the right way. And we knew that more and more of 
the demand for great produce was continuing to go up. So we really knew that we would have figured out our business plan, figured out how to grow plants in time for that access to that, that nexus. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. You looked at all these problems in the industry. You came up with a solution, technologies, uh, foundational to it. How did you know that you were creating something that the end consumer really, really wanted? So take us back to what was your proof of concept with the consumer and how did the brand name emerge out of all of this? We, we didn't originally. In fact, two quick points. One, we started growing not just leafies, but tomatoes and strawberries because we really didn't believe we could differentiate on lettuce. We did know that there were no brands in produce. And I want to be really clear with this. And I realize this is a bold, offensive statement. And I will make it as loudly as I can and scream it from mountaintops. And I would love to be challenged by any produce company. There are labels in produce. There are no brands. Because by definition, and your audience knows this better than anybody else, a brand is a promise to consumer of something. It can be consistency. It can be quality, food safety, flavor, texture, nutrition, freshness against something. Today, there cannot be a brand in produce because all the products come from the same field. There's no differentiation. It is a commodity. The reason I say there are no brands is all the produce is grown in the same fields. It is susceptible to the same issues. If one field has good climate, so does the field next to it and the field next to it. It's trying to keep technology and innovation out of the space. And it's just, what's the lowest price? And it's not just about price. It is about nutrition. It is about paying the farmer. It is about keeping the doctor away. Just reducing the price and giving the consumer crap ends up having so many societal costs. If you look at the total cost of what the industry has done, supported by USDA and the government and the whole infrastructure is wrong. And we felt that it had to be fixed from inside by food professionals who had success. So we didn't know that our products would resonate going back to your original question, but we did know that there was a problem today. And we believed that the new consumer knows these problems. They know the lack of sustainability of farming. They know about the pesticide use. They know about the harms to the workers and to ourselves. They know about all these allergies we have now that we never had in the past. And the food system has something to do with it. The overprocessing, we can put any lipstick on that pig, but the food system has something to do with it. People's bodies don't change that fast. You start processing everything and there are side effects. We're seeing those side effects. So going back to the more natural, the unprocessed, the clean food, there's something to it. And we believe from the bottom of our hearts it would resonate with the consumer. We just have to figure out how. From a practical standpoint, we 
started experimenting on what we could grow and really what resonated with our customers and consumers. We started with a lot of chefs and we had them try a bunch of different things. And there's some things that they liked, some things we could make super potent. And they were like, oh, that's way too potent. Some, some was loved. We also had a couple of retailers that really kind of took us under their wing and helped us with commercializing our product. So we got a lot of information, just uh, grassroots. And then as we got bigger, then we were able to really start doing a lot of consumer insights, doing a lot of test panels and trials and looking at influencers and things like that. So at first, we just were so enthralled with the idea of we could grow anything that we did try to grow a lot of different things. And then we really started settling in on what the consumer needed. Now, the brand name, 80 Acres, where did, where did this brand name come from? Our first farm was literally a quarter of an acre uh, right here in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, Spring Grove Village on SD Avenue. And when we realized that the first product mix we were growing, because of how quickly we cycled the crops and because of how many layers we had in that farm, we were essentially in that quarter of an acre growing at 300 times the efficiency of growing crops in normal land. So on that particular crop, we were able to demonstrate factually that we were growing about 80 acres worth of produce. So we decided to name it 80 Acres. And it says a lot about you, right? You're data-based, <laughs> you're efficient, and you're about reinventing farming, right? So I think it's a beautiful name. It has a great story. Thank you. So, you know, we're nine years since you started this. You've raised a lot of money. You're in some of the biggest retailers, grocers with great reputations like Harris Teeter, Kroger, Whole Foods, you, you name others. You have multiple sites. So you're really, really, you know, getting it done. Was there ever a time in that nine years when you almost lost hope, when you almost shut the doors? Or was has it all been optimism and joy and success? Was there ever a time when you almost lost hope? You're both smiling, so I guess not. There was never a time that we lost hope. No, because losing hope is a decision and we would never make that decision. I truly believe that business success is a decision. Was there a time we were close to not making it? Yes, there were many times. Was there a commitment from us that we would kind of go down with the ship? Yes, and we were not going to abandon it. But I want to tell you something because this is, you know, often a bit of a misconception, right? There's a lot of overnight successes that are you know, like your Tito story that are 15 to 25 years in the making. And, you know, I hope we earn the right to be one of those. First of all, facts. If we look statistically, most businesses fail in the first year. Any business survives 10 year has a very high likelihood of making it one way or another. I don't know. Don't remember the numbers, but it's north of 70%. I want to say it's close to 80. The principle is why do most businesses fail early? And if you make it 10 years, you succeed. It's not that the best ideas last 10 years. It's that starting a business is really, really hard, no matter how great the idea is. And the odds are against every entrepreneur, no matter how great the idea is, how much support you have and everything else. You will encounter problems, scale up problems, growth problems. Many of them will appear unsolvable. And I really, truly believe that those entrepreneurs, those people, those humans that make a decision that you burn the bridges and there is no way back and you will find a way, will grit through it. You always find a way. There's always an answer. 
You just haven't found it. The question is sometimes, yes, you can't find it before doors get closed, but unlikely and often the team gave up. If you don't give up and if your team doesn't get up, there's always a way. And I know it sounds obnoxious and sounds like I'm not taking into consideration all these other factors. But I will tell you that, again, I will argue and debate this with anybody, that all the other factors fall aside when you decide you will find a way to make it work. If you're thoughtful enough and introspective enough and open-minded enough and have the right team and it's not all about you, but it's the team, the team will always find a way. Inspired team will always find a way, period. Tisha, please comment on that. It's a great little diatribe there, Mike. The good news is that we have two hard-headed (laughs) co-founders. We are very different in our approach, but we are 100% aligned on this because whenever I've had doubts or I've had rough days or I've had you know, thinking that we've got big problems that are insurmountable. There's Mike there that's always saying, oh, have you thought about this? Or, well, let's do this. And I hope that I'm the same for him. So the two of us figuring this out together and be completely aligned around success and only seeing success as the answer, we lift one another up when we have to, because this is hard. This is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. It's definitely the most fulfilling thing I've ever had to do either or wanted to do. I can't imagine doing anything else, but it's incredibly hard. And when we see others that are starting companies up and they're by themselves, we we wonder, you know, how they do it because it, it does take a village to to drive success uh, in a new business like this. Well we joke around that we're unemployable, so we have to make this work. <laughs> I don't know about that. Hey, you know, we talked about a few minutes ago when you just when you first met and your impressions of each other uh, since that moment how have you both most evolved as a leader now i know you're more senior you're more experienced you're older but if you had to draw out one single characteristic or attribute on how you have positively evolved as a leader because obviously you both have what would that be i would say i'm much more confident as a leader before mike and i started working together You know, I had roles, I had leadership roles, but it was different. When you have someone on your team that always has your back and can can work with you through any challenge, it gives you a certain set of freedom to be able to make bold decisions and to be able to push forward and do things that you never thought you could do before. And so I think that over the years, Mike and I are very comfortable with one another in our positions. And we don't always agree. Most of the time, we don't agree at first, but we always know that we both have the company's best interest at heart. Mike has my career and decisions best at heart. And I think he knows that I feel the same way about him. So a lot of it is about that confidence knowing that together you're going to do this. And if something fails or you make a wrong decision, it's all right. I got my partner in crime here ready to, to help pick me up and move us forward. Hey, Mike, how about yourself? I would say that for me, the biggest growth element has been, I've been more patient. And I think I have realized that I can be solving most of the problems and I've been able to let go and let the team solve the problems and be there to support, encourage, ask the tough questions, push them 
to be the best they can be. It's been an evolution to really become a coach rather than a team member, a performer on a team. I've always grown up with a pretty decent, I'm an immigrant, so I've always had a really good work ethic and a good, healthy need to prove myself to the community and others that has kept me motivated. Your insecurities often keep you motivated and keep you driven. And I've always been able to outwork most people. And that led me to, it was always easier for me to solve the problems than let others do it. But I think in the last 15 years, a serious realization set in that the only way to scale the business is through teams. It's through building others and motivating, inspiring, letting them do it and giving them the tools to solve problems. And it's been really hard because a lot of times, especially until you're in charge of your own company, you always have bosses that when problems arise, the natural tendency is to push you to go fix it because everything is an emergency. And to stand up to that and to resist and to still go, but to let your team fix it is incredibly challenging in an urgent environment. Now, you may be, in my years of doing this show, this may be the most disruptive innovation we have featured on this show. And we throw that term around a lot, right? In business books and so on, disruptive innovation, something that's never been seen before, radically different approach, something that upends supply chains and so on and so forth. And you really are doing that. And I think you've already answered this question, but it's so important. I would like to focus on that. We have a lot of people listening to the show in classrooms at universities who are building their careers. They might have a big idea. They may have a thought to disrupt the industry they're in. They may have a whole different way. They have passion for it, but they haven't hit the button yet. They haven't made the decision to, to go with it as you did nine years ago. So for those out there who do have the germ of an idea, what's your single biggest piece of advice for them? I would say that it's a lifestyle choice and make sure you're truly ready to commit. The point behind the point here, as Dennis O'Brien used to say, the question behind the question is, make sure this is what you want, that you're willing to do what it takes and you're doing it for the right reason. I see so many entrepreneurs that keep talking about their exits before they start things. Never invest a penny in that. I don't care how brilliant the idea is. It's never about the exit and it's never about the money. Yeah, we all want it. It can be something that's deep in you, but and it can be a fear that you're trying to work towards. That's all fine. But if that's your primary reason, it's going to fail. Make sure you're doing it for the right reason because it is the most, Tisha said it a while ago, it is the most difficult thing you will ever do in your life. And it is the most fulfilling thing you will ever do in your life. And you will be brought down and hear no so many more times than you ever have. Mm -hmm. And you have to believe in what you're doing, whether it's team, product, concept, and want it so badly that no amount of no is going to stop you. Now, when I say it's not going to stop you, you have to, at the same time, be open-minded and introspective and listen to feedback and be coachable because you can beat your head against the wall. And if you don't adapt if and you don't pivot and you don't find that right approach, right product, right technology, right mix, you will still fail. 
you need a combination of knowing you're going to figure it out, but listening and figuring it out. You have to do it for the right reason, and you have to be willing to truly be 100% in. There's people that want to start businesses, and they're like, okay, I'm going to do it for time. I'm going to do it. I've seen so many great ideas fail because they couldn't for whatever. If you're if you're not in a place in your life where you can be all in 100%, regard, you know, then it's not it's not your time. And you, you need to be able to struggle and find a way to make it all that you do. It is all encompassing. Every, every bit of this business is completely uh, encompass my life. It's a lifestyle choice for both. And your families are all in too, right? They have to be. They have to be. They have they have to be. To. And you as a person, as an entrepreneur, have to have a really weird combination of traits as a person. You have to, on one hand, be stubborn and confident, not arrogant. Not the typical confidence that people think, but you have to have a belief in something greater than you. And at the same time, you have to have the humility to listen and to pivot. Because if you don't have the confidence, the belief, and the desire, don't start. If you don't have the humility to pivot and shift to make it work, don't start. If you don't have those traits yet, work on them. Because without them, you will not succeed. Chances are against every startup in a major way. You can't have thin skin. You have to have super thick skin because you are going to be told no so many times and you just have to dust yourself off. You can't take it personal. You just got to keep on going. And yet there's no greater satisfaction than creating an industry. That's right. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. I wrote a book a couple of years ago about startups working with big companies, and a lot of startups get very frustrated working with big companies, right? They can't get a meeting. They can't get attention. Uh, they get meetings canceled. You obviously are working with some very large enterprises. What has been your experience in working with these companies, having them buy into your vision, work with you on that? Is there a lesson, a piece of advice you have for working with large enterprises? Because you obviously have done it very well. Well, to answer your question directly first, I would say that working with big co's, for us, it's easy to capture the hearts and the minds, right? We have a big idea. It's disruptive. It can impact the way that people eat around the world. Who doesn't want to do that? Who doesn't want to help? drive nutrition and great tasting food. It's always the devils in the details and the practicality of the next meeting and the follow-up and the next meeting and, and continuing to stay relevant. You know, our philosophy from the beginning has been, this is a big industry. We are changing the industry or we are creating an industry. And Mike and I started this company with our own funds, with our own resources. And we knew that we couldn't do it all. There were some people that went out and they got big money and then they had to spend that big money and they spent it on a bunch of different things. 
for us, we wanted to be able to set the pace for our business. We wanted to be able to set the culture of our business. And we only wanted to take money when we needed it. And we knew that the best way to build our business was through collaboration. And so we started seeking out different companies where they were world-class. And so we work with Philips Signify on lights because we believe their lights are world-class. We didn't need to develop our own lights to be able to do what we're doing. We knew that Siemens is world-class in industrial automation and, and everything else that they do. We decided that we would seek them out and we would ask them to be a partner and we'd figure out how to collaborate with them, how to have open dialogue around our problems, which means you have to have trust and you have to be vulnerable with these companies that could eat your lunch or suck, you know, suck you into their board easily. The big thing is you have to figure out who are the people that you want to work with who have like-minded, are like-minded, who can see your vision. And then where do you have to go it alone? Where do you have to innovate on your own? Because that's the balance. So for us, it was looking in the industry, what is it out there that already exists? Let's bring on world-class technology there and we'll innovate in the gaps. We will use our resources to innovate where nothing else exists today. And we'll partner with people to do all the other things. Maybe we move a little slower. It's a little frustrating when you're working with big companies, but if you can be persistent, the biggest thing for us is, and I think why we're successful is because we're thinking about what's in it for them. What's in it for us is, is sometimes obvious. What's in it for them? Where do they see a strategic advantage in partnering with us? And always keep that on the front. Why is it that we both think that this is a great partnership? That's great. And that's exactly right. I'd like to provide a little bit of a framework to what Tisha said and how we got there, because we didn't get there accidentally. As Tisha was pointing out, we got there methodically and with a purpose. We felt it was a point of difference for us. Look, we believe very strongly that big co small co collaboration is essential for both big companies and small companies for success and for speed. And it's very easy for small co to blame big co's that they're not fast enough, you can't get a meeting, you know, whatever. But if I'm going to be totally honest and transparent, you know, we, we keep joking around that our relationship with Kroger, you know, was six, seven years in the making. And frankly, it was a 20 years in the making in our previous career to establish trust. But we were pounding on Kroger's door six, seven years ago. But honestly, we weren't ready for that. And Kroger knew it. And there's a reason it took that long. And they start us with a store. We always wanted more as a startup. You have to want more, but we weren't ready. So I think this framework here is really relevant in the way we think about it. If your audience would please work with me here for a second. But if you think of three different types of companies, if you have startups, family type companies and businesses, which there's a lot of in America, and then big calls. And if we just think about positives and negatives of each, right? So a simple matrix. So if I think about a startup, What's a startup great at? Startup is great at being fast, at being nimble, to do whatever it takes, at pivoting constantly and reacting responsive. What's a startup not good at? Usually resources, dollars, people, access. Family company. Family company is great at ownership. You usually have that strong leader that drives things with an iron fist. You know, first generation, second generation, third generation is always a little more difficult as we know. But the point is, you have that ownership, you have that connectivity, you have that trust, you have that faith, you have the belonging, you have a community. But what don't you have? 
you don't have the hard requirements of a private equity company. You're kind of comfortable. You don't have to push fast and you're too dependent on that strong leader. It's really hard to go good to great with the passing of the leader, passing the baton. Often there's not the succession planning and there's not that sense of urgency. When you think about big costs, what's the, what do big costs have? They have tremendous resources. They have access, they have visibility to everything. What don't they have? Well, they have bureaucracy, which is necessary to not jeopardize the big company, but at the same time, it is slow. Big companies, despite all the proclamations of great innovation, and I know, again, P&G is one example of tremendous innovation, but generally have really difficult time innovating. And they have to buy that innovation. They're just not geared to innovate. You're geared to either run or to innovate. And the question is, how do you combine them without just being bought out? So I think to make Bitcoin small co work, if you think about that framework, I think we talk a lot about egoless collaboration. It is really important to acknowledge what are you good at and what are you not good at. And then if you can find partnerships and establish partnerships, and it has to be top to top with an acknowledgement of, hey, here's what I bring to you, but here's what I don't have or what I need. And you, it doesn't work with everybody. You have to find the right partner on the other side of the table that is at the right point in their career and their journey, in their leadership journey or company journey that they see what you're offering as a value and you're ready to deliver on it. Then you can do incredible things. And I think we're doing that with Kroger, with Siemens, with some seed providers, with Philips or Signify, as Disha said, and frankly, with some CPG companies that we have not announced yet that are working on ingredient businesses a couple of years out and we are their path to sustainability. There's a lot of uh, tremendous, tremendous opportunity, but you have to find the right partners on the other side that understand that just because they're bigger, they're missing something. And you have to understand that just because you're more nimble, you have to try to work within the system. So I really think that we as a company believe that to create an industry, to do it in a meaningful, sustainable way, to do something that was science fiction just 10 years ago, we have to have partners. We have to go far. We still have to go fast. And that's where we do do things alone, but it's on few things that we have to go fast on everything else. We have to have the right partners. We have to get there together. Then we do it with real impact. This is the CMO podcast, so we should talk a little bit about CMO stuff. We are talking about CMO stuff, frankly. We have been doing that for the last hour or so. But which one of you is more the CMO of this company? I, I would say that we've divided things up where Tisha has more operations and I have more commercial responsibility. So I think it would fall on me. But realistically, we have had phenomenal CMOs and marketing professionals that have taught us a lot. We have a very unique approach to the business, primarily because we do feel that it is the last unbranded white space produce that is mm -hmm. in the whole retail channel. We feel that consumers have not been getting what they've been asking for. And again, there's structural impediments from farming, but there's structural impediments in the industry because again, growers are dealing with buyers and there's a few buyers. There's 10 to 15 buyers in the country that matters and there's tens of thousands of growers. And the buyers, unfortunately, are not always representing what the consumers want. They're representing what they're incentivized to represent, which is margin, and they know how to get the best price. And that holistic behavior 
unfortunately has been leaving the consumer out for way too long. So we'd love to talk about CMO stuff or our performance in a marketplace is like nothing I've ever seen before. I will just tell you that I've been in the food and CPG space for over 30 years now. And every time I've had to do a cutting, except for the last eight years, I was always a little nervous. There's always the something in the back of your head that is worried about how will the product perform? What happens today? What have they found? For the last eight years is the first time in my life that I am no longer afraid to do a cutting against anybody, including CA space, but definitely any traditional provider of salad kits, of microgreens, of leafy greens. I can say this with complete confidence. I have not lost a cutting in the last eight years, and we do a lot of them. And that is something that I don't think any CMR, any company in the world can say with a straight face. So when you say lost a cutting, you mean a product? Yeah, a product comparison where any retailer or any ingredient provider or whatever else can go bring their best, their freshest, go pick your best stuff from the store. And then go take random stuff from our DC and you set them side by side and we'll watch and you compare based on freshness and flavor and texture, any attribute that you want to measure. We always come out on the top and I didn't think that was possible. Mm-hmm. So great brands, um, you know, the great brands of the world have a wonderful purpose. They know their place in the world, the problem they're trying to solve. You certainly have that, right? They have engaged organizations. You seem to have that. And they're usually pretty clear on where they need to differentiate versus their competitive set. You have competitors coming into the space. So how do you talk about differentiation with your teams and and among yourselves? Obviously, you're talking about product superiority. You've just done that. But if you were to flash a chart up here about how 80 acres is different and seeks to be different, what would that look like? It is about product superiority first and innovation Mm -hmm. second and manufacturing and operating competency third to provide that consistency and to keep driving it at the right, with the right unit economics. No, I was going to say it's delivering great product every single day. Mm-hmm. The product superiority is key and we know we compete on. It's all about freshness and it's all about taste and it's all about how long the product lasts and it's about the product making you feel good. The innovation is critical. Anybody can throw dust in a bowl and package it up and throw a pretty label on it, but consumers are too smart. They put it in their mouth and you look at your trials and your repeats and your basic performance and velocities in store. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. We have a very rigorous new product development, new product innovation process. We test things. We have a very professional team. We've been through it a lot and we believe that really differentiates us. Look, technology is an enabler. We believe technology enables us to have a superior product and we work a lot on technology, but we never talk to consumers about our technology. That's another point of difference. Consumer doesn't care if it's CA or this or that. They care, they care it's sustainable. They care that they buy our product, they put it in the fridge, they give a chance to eat it, they go on vacation for two weeks, they come back, the product is as good as new. And they can't understand it because normally their fridge smells bad and they have to throw it away and they get a bunch of icky stuff that melted. And then they start asking questions and understanding. But consumers don't care about technology. You Consumers don't need technology. Consumer mm-hmm. needs superior products. But you have to, in CPG space and food, continue to innovate. You have to continue to drive new flavors. You have to continue to drive new ingredients. You have to continue to make people feel better. When they eat your product, if they truly feel better, they might not know why, but they'll come back. And then the sustainability halo 
It's not just lip service. It's incredibly real. We do all CA analysis. We can prove how much more sustainable we are versus any other form of production of produce. That matters. I'm not sure a consumer would buy a product. Some would, but majority of the consumer would not buy it just because it's more sustainable, but it's part of our corporate ethos. It's who we are. Now, as you scale and get bigger and bigger and create this industry, how do you ensure that your larger organization has the same sense of purpose and conviction and belief that we certainly have felt over the last hour? This is easier said than done, right? So how do you ensure, what's your lessons for other leaders out there who are purposeful and have the conviction that you two have in keeping that ever-present as they get bigger and bigger and bigger over time? Look, this is something we think about all the time, and it's a very difficult question, and I will not pretend to give you an answer. I will share some thoughts and what we do, but that is very different than providing an answer because I think every situation is different. I think every company is different. I think nobody really knows, and you have to apply tools to the proper situation. Every company is a living organism. And they go through different stages. In the right time of that growth, they need different things and different leaders. And we're not always the right leaders for every stage of growth. And we're, by the way, very aware of that. And we very openly talk with the organization about that. The moment we're not the right leaders, we will walk away. And for that, we're trying to develop the next group of leaders. But look, we we feel it's important to be authentic. We feel it's important to not, again, as lip service, but truly authentic. We believe we have to be confident enough to show our insecurities at times to the team. And we talk to the team about it. We talk to the team that we are 300 strong. A couple of years ago, we were 80 strong. In a couple of years, we're going to be well over 1,000 strong. And we're going to grow as we have proven the technology and we're answering the growth stage of our company. We are going to go to many thousand people. Our intention is to build a massive global company. We intend to be a major CPG company uh, we, we hope to earn the right to do so, but we intend to get there. We talk with the leaders that the first 300, we're not going to be able to talk and touch every associate in three or four years if we're still the right leaders to lead this company. And the onus is going to be on them and the responsibility on them. And we talk a lot about learn from each other and our corporate values, which Tisha can go through, but we talk about it. We talk about the responsibility why we started this company, that we wanted a smart, ethical company. We, we felt the world needed it. We felt we wanted to build it, but it will outgrow us and outlive us if we do things right. And we are talking to all of our managers on a regular basis and all of our associates. We have all hands meetings every month with all of our associates and we will no matter how big it gets. And we discuss these things very openly. And we answer all the questions very openly. It's a process. I, I don't know if there's an answer other than it's a process. And it's a way of life. It's a discipline. And we hope that our current and future leaders will believe that it's a good way to live. They will want to propagate those behaviors. Well, not only want, but we, we hire for the values, right? We hire for competency, obviously, but you have to live and believe in the core values of our company. And that is the way you propagate the culture through the organization. And so while Mike and I 
can touch, you know, everyone once a month, uh, maybe once a quarter as we get bigger, maybe once a year if we get really big. But the core people that we are bringing on as part of the team, they have to live those values as well. And so we've been very lucky that we have a team that is very like-minded in, in wanting to, to drive this business. You know, one of our core values is own it. We want everyone to be an owner. We want everyone to think like an owner. And, you know, the definition of integrity, Mike tells us all the time is, what do you do when no one's looking? You know, what decisions do you make? And we, we have those discussions up and down the organization because we think it's so important that everyone share in the ownership of the company, which we fully believe is important, but then also that they are enabled and given the information to be able to make the right decisions. So that's, that's just one of our core values that's super important to us. And we hire for it. And I think that if you have a team that is fully aligned on what's important to the business, then they'll propagate it down. It is the way. I hear the train in your background, by the way. Before the show started, I was warned that there would be a train that came on. I hope it's carrying lots of your wonderful products out to the markets. <laughs> so, hey, um, let's wrap this wonderful conversation up with a kind of a quick creator brief because you're both such interesting individuals. I, I don't want to don't want to not do the creator brief. And the first question, you probably know this is coming if you're, you're a listener. What's the first brand each of you remember making an impact on you as children? Uh, I would say that it was probably play school because that's where I learned about the world through toys and through playing. And you're a builder now. I'm a builder yeah. now. That's right. <laughs> Mike. More difficult for me. I grew up as an immigrant in Belarus and we didn't grow up with brands. We grew up with the need to survive and trying to figure out where your next meal is coming from. So I have a very different perspective, but knowing the question was coming, I pulled my family actually. <laughs> and I heard Good. everything from Disney for my girls and uh, Nike shoes for my boy. And I do, I guess, have a shoe story as an immigrant to this country. Played a little basketball and, you know, we didn't have, I thought I was a decent basketball player, but we didn't have any money. And my parents were so proud they picked up a first pair of shoes for me. They happened to be very light blue. They were women's shoes. But I remember showing up seventh grade basketball practice with these light blue women's shoes. Again, I'm old. So you rewind back 40 some years and it was a bit of a challenging moment. And I do remember the first time that I got a pair of Nikes to play basketball. It was a big personal deal for me. That's a common answer in the show for a good reason. It's an amazing category, an amazing brand. I would like each of you to, you've worked together so long and you're working in such a remarkable company now that you have founded. Tishu, could you tell me what inspires you most about your business partner, Mike? And then Mike, I'm going to ask you to do the same with Tisha. Oh, wow. That's I tough. wasn't ready for this one. No, I wasn't either. <laughs> now, I think the thing that inspires me about Mike is that he has this insatiable curiosity about the world and about the business. He's a life learner and he's always pushing me and the rest of the organization to think about things differently and to think about things in a better way. And so I'm just inspired because for me, it's it's executing, you know, my, my world sometimes is a three-day, what happened yesterday, what happens today, and what happens tomorrow. 
with with operations and engineering and all of that. And Mike is is often looking out into the world of what can be and what we haven't thought about yet. And so I'm very grateful for him in that way and also very inspired that his mind works that way. Thank you. It's very kind. What are you going to say about me? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I got something nice, I guess. Yeah, look, Tisha is honestly one of the few people that I've met that can consistently, not only can, but does outwork me. And I think her commitment to excellence and finding the answer, no matter how impossible it might seem, is remarkable. Her ability to lead teams across the globe with different cultures, things that would frustrate any human. Everybody has different objectives and different goals, and you have to be so patient and yet direct enough and forceful enough and realize that everybody's speaking different languages and and there's translation issues. And to be able to manage that, I think, is difficult. I think just the breadth of her capability and the energizer bunny mentality that she just never stops and things just always get done is incredible because I always prided myself on my ability to outwork anybody. I always used to say that I might not be the smartest guy in the world, but good luck outworking me. And she has. So, and she does it smartly, not just by putting the hours in. So I'm incredibly thankful for working with somebody that has such a knack for operations that continues to drive and look for excellence and push her team to be better and better and better. Free me, frankly, to think about trends and and look at what's coming and look at who's doing what better than us and to try to keep scaring the team into better performance. But Tisha needs to often insulate the team from me so that they can actually perform. So I think it's a very synergistic combination where I can be too much of a terror if let loose on a team and Tisha's often that buffer that brings a lot of thoughts and what could be possible to reality. Well, you too, I feel like we could keep talking all day. You've been, you've been extremely generous with your time and your insights and your passion. So thank you for this marvelous discussion. I'm, I'm very also very proud that you're based in the Cincinnati area out in Hamilton. I built my career partially in Cincinnati. I still live in Cincinnati. We're big fans of the city. So thank you for everything you're doing for the city, for the world, for the discipline of marketing. You're a great inspiration and we're all rooting for you. And I think our listeners are going to be figuring out how they can buy your brand. So, so. Well, thank, you. Thank, thank you for the opportunity to thank you so much. share our story. Thank you for your time and your listeners time. Thank you. That was my conversation with Mike and Tisha. This one's a tough one to get into three lessons. The entire recording I thought was full of lessons, but let's try it. First lesson, conviction. These two have tremendous conviction about what they're doing, the purpose of their company, the problem they are trying to solve in this world, and how their company can create a category that will make their world better. It made me think about conviction in my life. I hope it helped you with your conviction in life. This was a beautiful story about the power of having conviction. Second, this was also a model of a great business partnership. These two have worked together for many years. They started their own company, a a company with a tremendous purpose. And the way they talk about each other, what inspires them about each other, how they divide responsibilities, 
how they think about this business as a lifestyle choice, really a choice for their families. I thought it was just a beautiful discussion about the strength of a fabulous business partnership. And third takeaway, the model of egoless collaboration. I love that thought. We talked an awful lot about how a young company can work with a more mature company. And this whole idea of involving people, other companies in your collaboration, in your mission, figuring out what you need to do and what they can do really well and having this curious model of egoless collaboration. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.